0: We're again privileged and blessed to be able to gather on this occasion in the quietness and at this point the darkness of this hour to appreciate the light that's available in here from the Word of God. For didn't the Lord say Himself in John 8 verse 12, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. As we seek to follow the Savior this evening and walk those bright pathways that lead to everlasting glory we shall consider a lesson in the time allotted to us to give some thought to a portrait of Judas Iscariot. I suspect immediately by the mention of that name, there are many thoughts that come to our mind, considerations and images and reflections of this one. And I would ask as we give some thought to some introductory matters, I suspect many of us have often reflected upon that man named Judas Iscariot. We've perhaps wondered what it would have been like to walk in his shoes. We've pondered how he could have made the decisions that he did. We've even perhaps wrestled with the appreciation of what prompted or led him to some of the matters that he chose to do in his life. Not only shall we consider some of them this evening, but let me at least introduce the lesson with some thoughts perhaps concerning Judas and matters related to him that we should perhaps keep in mind given the Culture in the world in which we live. I have perhaps directed them to you in this manner. Maybe as we give thought to the reason, the ways in which Judas chose to make the things, the statements, and the choices that he did. You and I, perhaps, given the kind of individuals that we are, we may never thoroughly understand the finality of why he did what he did. I think we'll find in some verses that some hints and some appreciation is given. But I might in fact ask you to notice that the scriptural account in the Gospels, the Gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, do point out to us that he is called a betrayer on several occasions. As he chose to betray the Master, might we at least interject this. There are other writings that portray him very differently. You may have heard the so-called Gospel of Judas Iscariot. Believe it or not, there is a spurious gospel account that does, in fact, describe supposedly a very different Judas than the one with which you and I are familiar. In fact, not only in that one is he not a villain, he is actually a hero. Ultimately, in that particular so-called gospel account, he is portrayed as one who, in fact, did what Jesus told him to do. In that account, the Lord told him to do what he did. And he, among all the other apostles, actually followed through on what the Savior said, and that would lead ultimately to the opportunity for Jesus to pay the price for human sin. And in that regard, at least in that account, he is a hero. You might notice I did use the word spurious. It is not an inspired account. It did not flow through the agency of the Holy Spirit and His superintending influence, but many scholars and those of our modern-day critical approach to the Scriptures give a great deal of credence to that so-called gospel of Judas Iscariot. I would simply urge you that when you hear that on the news, or when others perhaps speak of it, that you'll appreciate it was a spurious account written at the earliest, well over 250 years after Jesus lived on this earth. So it didn't come along until well near the end of the second century. But with all of that said, might you and I, at least near the bottom, study from the trustworthy book, the Holy Scriptures about Judas Iscariot this evening. As we do that, may I suggest that we strive to align it a bit chronologically as we look at some of the facets and features of his life, doing so by first beginning in the following way. I would ask that you give some thought to a positive set of thoughts about Judas. We should, however, in fairness, notice that not all of what the Scripture affirms about him is negative. Not all of it is, in fact, in the way of a betrayer. There are some positive things, and I would ask that we begin in that way because chronologically, it occurs first. We return to Luke, the sixth chapter. And on that occasion, we are given that bright occasion in which the Lord was organizing His ministry. It was relatively near the outset, if you please, of that work of the Lord's public preaching. We do find near the close of Luke 3 that the mention is made that at this point the Lord began His public ministry and He made one return visit, if you remember, to Nazareth where He was so resoundingly rejected. But near this opening position of His ministerial work in public, we find in verses 11, 12, and 13 that that He did pray all night. And when it was morning, He selected from the disciples twelve that would be the so-called apostles. And following that, we have the listing presented in verses 13 to 16 of those twelve that the Savior selected. The very last one mentioned was Judas Iscariot. The Lord having prayed earnestly and incessantly through the evening for the nature of the labors of these twelve the kind of lives that they would need to live, the emissaries and ambassadors for the message of the kingdom and gospel that they would need to be. The Lord prayed for them and then He selected among the others a man named Judas. I would ask that you notice something about that name. We are in fact told that he was the son of Simon, according to John 6 verse 71. And so Simon Iscariot was also a well-known at least in some circles, individual of that day. And perhaps the only hint that we can bring or take about the place of the heritage of Judas would be perhaps the name. Because the word Iscariot literally means men of Kirioth. Men of Kiriath. And when we recollect that, that word Kirioth was descriptive of a city, a village, if you please, in southern Judah, That may well be indicating to us that Judas and his family were from Curioth or at least the environs round about it. Perhaps that was the very place that was, the hometown, or at least the place of family legacy in regard to the Iscariot family. But might we at least note further, you can appreciate after his selection that some other things, at least indirectly, are said about Judas. In the 10th chapter of the gospel according to Matthew, we learn on that occasion that the Lord in fact commissioned those 12 on what you and I would call a limited commission. Later the great commission would come and He would of course send them, this was after His resurrection, to the whole world, preaching the beauty of the gospel in all of its majesty. But much earlier here in Matthew 10, the Lord commissioned them and sent them on a limited commission. They were told to go to no Gentiles, but rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. They were told along the way to preach the kingdom, that fact that it was near. Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You'll notice, though, that among the other things stated, these twelve were given power to heal. They were given power to raise the dead. They were given power to cast out demons, devils if you please, They were given marvelous and great power to work sundry things relative to these miraculous activities. And since the twelve were given this, that would have included Judas. Judas also had the capability of the service to the Master at this stage in his career to follow Him with power with the realistic nature of the fact he too could perform these wonderful acts of drawing credit and glory to the God of heaven and to, of course, His Son, Jesus the Christ. It perhaps could also be noted that along the nearness to the end of that, Jesus also gave these twelve another interesting feature of commandment. He told them that they needed to be as sheep among wolves. That is to say, they needed with humility to approach and appreciate their message, not for the power inherent in them, but for the realistic nature of the fact who was the actual originator of that which they were able to do. Furthermore, they were told to be wise as serpents. They needed to have a characteristic that there would be opposition. There would be those that would be reluctant. Some might even have a tendency to harm them and he said, you need to be wise. In that wisdom and in that humility, they were to go forth and preach to the Israelite nation and urge them to repent, for indeed the kingdom of heaven is at hand. As we give thought to Judas being among that number, preaching in power and might with the fullness of the Master at his back, we can conclude Judas worked with the other apostles at least at this stage of his career along with Peter and Andrew and James and John and the others. But of course, that does bring us to an application, at least to your life and mine. Judas did have a good beginning. He started on the right foot. He at least set sail with the wind at his back, appreciative of the opportunity available to him. He had already witnessed some wonderful things from the Master, He had heard the Lord's preaching. He had been sensitive to, no doubt, many of the things that the Lord had commanded. By this time, the Lord had already turned water to wine. Perhaps Judas was there to watch it. By this point, he had healed the nobleman's son in John chapter 4. Perhaps Judas was there to witness it. All the while, as he began positively, doesn't that perhaps say many things for us and about us? Isn't it wonderful to be able to start out on the right foot? Those in our school systems tell us that our children need to do that. Each day they need to begin that day with the available opportunity of positiveness to learn. May I suggest in our spiritual lives, we too would do well to appreciate a positive beginning. Maybe you and I can in some ways thank our parents or others who have had great influence on us in days past that helped us along the pathway of appreciation of truth. I would remind each of us of Psalm 16. For as you'll notice, in fact, in verse 6 of that chapter, wasn't it true the psalmist said, "...the lines have fallen to me in pleasant places." And he spoke about a goodly heritage that was bequeathed to him. Many of us can be thankful... For someone in the past who has had a very positive influence to help us walk a positive roadway that today has brought us in part to where we now are. In Psalm 103 verses 1 and 2, blessing pronounced to God for this very thing and the very opportunity of understanding that the lines perhaps have fallen for all of us in very, very pleasant places. I would ask us to also consider Philippians 3.14 as we think about Paul. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Here was the noble apostle, the one who had such a powerful influence over first century Christianity. He did so with the understanding of the boldness that Christ had given to him. But he said, I press toward the mark. Paul knew that at that point he was on a positive walkway. He hadn't always been, but at that point he was. May I ask each of us, myself included, what about the walkway on which you and I are traveling? Is it a positive one? The Lord wishes it to be, and in fact He desires it to be, and He has made all arrangements for it to be. Are you and I in stubbornness walking in the darkness at this point? Are we not walking with the positiveness with which we can? After all, we learn in 1 John 1 verses 4, 5, and 6 that there we have fellowship with God and with His Son and we are able to walk in that light because God is light. If you and I are choosing to walk in the darkness with the negativity, we do so not because it's God's will, because it's our choice and it's our preference, as sad and unfortunate as it may be a positive outlook, a positive beginning. Maybe you and I have enjoyed that at times in our life. Maybe we started a job or we started in some new program and at first it seemed so wonderful. But then there reaches a stage in which something else must be said. Things are not quite what they once were. It has taken a turn for the worse. Let's revisit the life of Judas as positively and with as nobility as we've noted as it began, might we look at a dark side. A turn, if you please, for that which was not so noble. The very first statement, in fact, tells us something the Lord knew. In John 6, verse number 70, On that occasion, Jesus Himself, even it is said of Him, that He knew that Judas was a devil, or that He knew that Judas, in fact, was of the description like, that which is described as that word devil. You see, the Lord, of course, knew what was in the heart of man, John two twenty five. He could read an individual's thoughts. He could read, in fact, those specifics and details in the life of an individual. He had prayed earnestly and had selected Judas. But down the stream of time, he, of course, also knew what Judas would do. He knew that Judas could rightly be described as being a devil. And that word devil, as it appears in that verse, is the word diabolos, the same word that appears in texts such as Matthew twenty-five, forty-one, when Jesus spoke of a place prepared for the Diabolos, the devil and his angels. And thus Jesus, you see, knew well that this Judas was eventually going to become a far different person than he now was, or the way in which he had begun. Can we not perhaps give some thought then to the next major element revealed to us in the Holy Scriptures about Judas? A fair amount of time, frankly, has now passed. We remember the Lord's public ministry encompassed somewhat over three years. We now are all the way to the time of but six days before the keeping of the Passover when He would be slain, crucified for your sins and mine." But we do see Judas rising to the surface as we hear him make some statements. Let's revisit the 12th chapter of the gospel according to John. It was on that occasion in the city of Bethany, that same place in which the Lord had, remember, raised Lazarus in the previous chapter. But as we come to this occasion, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, it is stated on that occasion that Mary took the opportunity to anoint the feet of Jesus. And as she did that, she proceeded to use her hair to wipe his feet. But as you notice, it was stated on that occasion that she used this alabaster, this ointment, this costly ointment, broke it and poured it upon the master. It was here that Judas made a comment. He objected. And in that objection, he said, Should not or could not this have been sold for much and given to the poor? Why was such a waste made? In effect, he practically reprimanded Mary. He rebuked her for that choice in what he thought was a waste. You'll notice that in the particular text before us, though, these interesting comments are in fact made. The inspired writer is quick to tell us it's not that Judas actually cared for the poor. The inspired writer, John, reminds us he really was a thief. He held the bag. And he often helped himself to what was in it. In order to help us perhaps see that more clearly, I have used the English Standard revision of that particular verse. And I would ask that you note it with me. The English Standard Version reads that verse in the following way. He said this, Not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. That's the ESV's rendering of John 12, verse 6. Thus, we have an inspired writer informing us that Judas didn't really care for the poor, and that statement wasn't prompted by that heartfelt compassion. It rather was prompted because he was a thief. He wanted further control of the money bag, of course, and what was in it, and he was accustomed to helping himself out of it. Judas, you see, was guilty of embezzling He was guilty of taking that which wasn't rightfully his to take for his personal benefit. It was in that money bag for the usage of the Savior and the work of the apostles, the carrying out of the ministry, and the assistance to all the things that accompanied that ministry. Judas was a thief. And as we notice, he had thus turned so far from that positive way in which he had begun. He had been able to heal the sick He'd been able to raise the dead. He had been able to go about with preaching the proclamation with boldness and power. And now he's described as a thief. Now he is cataloged as being one who in fact was bereft of compassion, had no care for the poor. How far had he sunk? How low had he gone? It's perhaps easy to see from that passage that we can perhaps make an application even to us. What begins with a positive outlook and starts out on the right foot if there isn't vigilance to maintain it and if there isn't commitment to pursue it to its positive end, it can turn into that which not only is ignoble but to that which can be a disgrace and to that which can be, in fact, that which is hurtful and harmful. We can learn in this a constant need in all of us too for ever-present vigilance in the matter of faith, can't we? Here was Judas. He was able to witness Jesus. Watch Him, hear Him, be with Him, observe Him. You and I don't have the luxury of seeing Him in the flesh today, admittedly. Thus, we can't just pick up the phone, if you please, and literally talk to Him. But you might notice that does impress upon us the need to follow the word He has given and to do so with an impressive vigilance, a steadfastness, a keeping on, keeping on, if you will. And it is in that regard I would ask us to consider these applications. Based on this text of John 12 verse 6, it thus seems that Judas had a love of money. He was in charge of the money bag, the money box, if you please. And in that, he helped himself to it. That would at least suggest he had an inordinate affection for money. In fact, as we'll see in the next segment of the lesson, that would emanate into one other activity in his life. But for now, as we think about the vigilance, and in particular the direction to ever keep at bay that love of money, Give some thought to these verses. No man can serve two masters, John six or Matthew six twenty-four. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will cling to the one, and despise the other. You cannot serve God in Mammon. That word mammon is an Aramaic term that means money. You cannot be a slave to the Lord and to money at one and the same time. And thus, we in our materialistic world must be ever careful because the love of money seems to always be before us, doesn't it? Paul, in fact, addressed it in 1 Timothy 6, verses 9 and 10. In verse 10 in particular, he said, For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveteth after they have erred from the the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. You'll notice with me that to that church in Ephesus, That's where Timothy was stationed. And Paul carefully warned them, do not have a love of money. In the preceding verse, he even went so far as to say it leads to destruction. Seven verses later, in verse 17 of that chapter, he said, charge them that would be rich to be not high-minded, nor to put their trust in uncertain riches, but to trust in God who richly giveth us all things to enjoy we can easily see a contrast there, can't we? There is the faithfulness and the carefulness of God, but there's the uncertainty of riches. Put your trust in the certainty of God, not in the uncertainty of riches. Can we not perhaps see further some passages that remind us, such as in Revelation 18, where it was there stated that even with regard to Babylon, Her riches, her prosperity, and her money will not save her. And so it shall be at the day of judgment, isn't it? Our money will not be that which saves us that day if we're saved. The characteristic of our possessions will not save us that day if we are blessed to be saved. We will find our salvation housed only in this. Neither is there salvation in any other For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Acts 4.12 Thus can we not see in Judas, he had apparently become to the point of allowing money, the love of it to be a driving mechanism and force in his life, and in part he had distanced himself from the compassion, the truth, and the love that was characteristic of the message and of the wording of our Savior. You and I can fall into that same trap. Have you and I not been aware of individuals who perhaps due to success with which they were blessed and suddenly they had more money than they had never had before? And with that, they began to make poor decisions. They began to squander it, to use it wastefully, to employ it in ways that separated them from the simplicity and the directness that they once had known And finally, within a matter of seemingly a short while, they were not the same person that they once were. We've just seen that happen to Judas, haven't we? Isn't it amazing that that word Judas comes from the same word as the word Judah? And we think about Judah, the tribe of Judah in the Old Testament, the very one through whom the Savior came. And yet Judas was the one that was the betrayer. To say all of that does bring us, though, to another aspect of Judas's life, and it's the one I'm sure we've each turned to already, in our mind and our thinking. Just as surely as thievery is, of course, not that which the Lord approves, we are given the express statement in Luke 22:3 that Satan entered Judas. Whatever he had done before, then with regard to what he now was about to do, Satan in particular entered him and these actions that now would follow would be in line of that which was the will of the devil. We, of course, are aware of what was about to happen. In fact, in the very next verse, Judas proceeded to make arrangements with the chief priests and scribes to betray him. And he sought opportunity from that point to bring it about. His mind had become sufficiently calloused. His approach had become sufficiently directed that now he was going to see it through. And might we appreciate that Satan had entered him on that occasion. This was a particularly life-changing event, of course, for him. And he's going to sink now even lower than he had before. You see, once one starts down that slippery slope of sinfulness... The degree of which the steepness can continue to incline can lead one to slide faster and faster and faster. Might we thus continue to think about how steadfast we must be, for there is a precipice of sin, and to step over it may lead to a point of no return. As we give some thought to those points, consider this. The Passover was thus shortly in Judas's future as He assembled with the others and with the Savior on that Passover evening. You might remember Jesus made the prediction that night, "'One of you will betray Me.'" And they all began to say, "'Lord, is it I? Lord, is it I?' Can you imagine Judas amongst the number, knowing that by this point the arrangements had already been made? And yet he too was interested to, in fact, apparently cover his innocence." And as we can see, even that night, as Peter and John had discussion, and in fact, Peter encouraged John to ask Jesus, who would it be? And of course, Jesus took the sop, and He said, The one to whom I give it, it is He, and He handed it to Judas. The Lord thus indicated that He knew very well who it was to be. And in fact, did He not also say, What thou doest, do quickly. And thus the evening was now to proceed in great quickness to bring about the events that would lead to the next morning. As we give thought though to the other events of Judas that night, we can well remember that in the garden shortly hereafter, as Jesus gathered Himself there, Judas arrived after the Lord had prayed so earnestly three times. And while the Lord was in fact speaking to the other disciples gathered there, Judas appeared with the crowd. Those officers available from the chief priests and the others, and Judas kissed him. And with that kiss, he identified the one that they should arrest and take, and now the proceedings began even more swiftly and even more quickly to reach a fruition. And so the Lord was arrested and hauled away that night, one by one before the places of trial. And now we find something very intriguing Because isn't it interesting, based on Matthew 27, verse 3, what Lucas read for us a few moments earlier tonight, it would appear from that text that Judas felt as if something else would happen. I would ask that we reread that verse. Matthew 27, verse number 3. Then Judas, which had betrayed him, when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself... "...and brought again the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders." It is significant in the Greek text that there is that phrase, when he saw that he was condemned. I would suspect that Judas, based on the miracles he had seen the Lord perform, based on the various activities that he had seen him undergo, based on the control he had exhibited over nature, raising the dead, stealing storms changing water to wine, anything the Lord wanted to do, it seems He had the capability of doing it. It may well thus be that Judas felt as if his betrayal would only gain some money, but that the Lord, in fact, would always have the power to result in His freedom. He would always miraculously be able to make His own freedom and liberty, and thus He would never, in fact, ultimately have to suffer for what Judas had begun if that was Judas's thinking, and it seems from verse 3 that it well may have been, when Judas saw that in fact he was not going to be freed, when he saw that he was not going to invoke his power to free himself, when he saw that he was going to walk the way to Calvary, and that he was in fact going to suffer, it then says he repented himself. It then says that he was sorrowful for what he had done. It then says that he perhaps wished that things were different. Isn't it interesting that that word when is a word that indicates a relationship to time. It's when he saw that the Lord was condemned that he repented himself. He then recognized that his deeds had brought this about and that the Lord was not going to miraculously free himself. It seems he came to a richer appreciation of that fact. And as such, that leads us to this next point. He repented Himself and the verses that follow remind us. He took back that 30 pieces of silver, threw it down at the feet of those individuals. However, they said, see thou to that. What is that to us? They now had the person they wanted and Judas had been a critical cog to bring it about. He, in essence, had been a key figure to bring about the arrest and the condemnation of the Savior. See thou to that, Judas. And with that, the text quickly tells us that he went out and hanged himself. He committed suicide. He brought about his own death. Later, we have another reference to this event in Acts one eighteen, where there, as the eleven were gathered, it was they who recognized that one needed to be appointed to fill the place of this one whose bowels had gushed out when... He, in fact, had undergone that betrayal and the events described in that place. We thus find that Judas had started so well, but he had fallen so far. He now had taken his own life. I suspect you and I are aware, at least many times on the nightly news, we see individuals and we wonder, what had that person's life been like? He may have grown up, a good boy with loving parents, but he made a wrong step somewhere, and that step led to another, and he finally found himself on the wrong end of a gun. Or he, in fact, on the occasion of taking his own life, he had slipped as far as Judas had, at least in regard to his own life. In regard to all of that, may I suggest that this is a weighty thing in one regard, isn't it? It should forever be a reminder to us that that way that starts with sin today, none of us know where that will lead tomorrow. Isn't it true that so many think that sin is light? I can sin with impunity, but all will be fine tomorrow. It's a fine matter. I will simply enjoy a frolicking evening tonight with a young lady. If you please, tomorrow I'll be all the better for it. You don't know where that sin will lead. And how many around our world today have found marriages wrecked? They have found homes torn apart because of what they thought would just be a little time of sin. You see, none of us know where that first step will lead. Look where it led for Judas. With a positive beginning and it ended in suicide. It ended betraying the Son of God. It ended in such a negative fashion. No wonder we are commanded to be vigilant. No wonder we're commanded to ever remain in the precious light of the gospel of the Christ so that we will never take that first wrong step. Because suffice it to say, any pathway that ends in darkness had to have a first step of darkness. So if we never take the first step, we'll never have to end up worrying about where that may lead us to end up. May I ask us to look at just a few of these verses. What about Moses? Moses. When he took that step in Numbers chapter 20, after having led the children of Israel with such regarded faithfulness, and yet he did on that occasion an attempt to bring the glory and the honor to himself rather than direct it to God, and for that, he would be forever barred from entering the promised land. I'm sure if we could ask Moses today, was that a weighty matter? Without a doubt, he would say it was. You see, at the time, Moses may never have appreciated that this could keep me out of the land of Canaan, that this would be sufficient and adequate to keep me out of that marvelous place of milk and honey, and yet it did. Or perhaps another example, in Leviticus 10, verses 1 through 3, if we could speak with Nadab and Abihu today and ask them, was that occasion of offering strange fire to God, was that a momentous moment? Was it an occasion fraught with weighty responsibility? Without a doubt, they'd say it was. Fire leapt out and consumed them that day. For you see, they did that which God hadn't commanded. They did that which He had commanded them not. You'll notice again that first step for them was the only bad one that they ever needed. Perhaps another example in 2 Samuel 12. Suppose we could ask David... Was it a momentous occasion when you walked on the palace roof and espied Bathsheba from a distance? And when you then proceeded to act after that to bring her to you? You notice one sin did lead to another one. He should never have been up there to look at her in the first place. But then when he did, to have the audacity to bring her to him, one sin had led to another one. And of course they would lead to both adultery and murder before the next few days were over. You see, sin often cascades, doesn't it? It is as if one pushes over a domino in the, way it, in the way it goes. Satan is a master. Notice he entered Judas at the right time. He knew when the propitious time would be. He entered David at the right time. He entered Moses at the right time. Maybe another example. In Acts 5, beginning in verse 1, may we not suggest he entered Ananias and Sapphira at the right time. Here was an early day in the church when the glory and the circumstance allowed brethren to enjoy fellowship in order to maintain the onward progress of the church. And yet they sold a parcel of ground, claimed that they had given it all, and so they had lied, but they really kept back part of it. Both of them lost their life that day. span of three hours separated them where they buried him, they buried her nearby. May we ask? Was that a momentous occasion in their life? Without a doubt, they'd say it was if we could ask them. Perhaps one final example. Taking us back to Judas one more time. Here was one who started so well. He took a turn for the worst and it only went from bad to worse from there. In summary then, in regard to all of this, may we think twice. As we give thought to a positive outlook and never take that for granted because it is a great blessing. But with that in mind, just an outlook alone is not enough. We must build on that and walk along that way of positiveness to the end that would be the blessing of God. You notice that Judas began to take some wrong turns. He was a thief. Ultimately, that led him, of course, in that love of money to do many other things. May you and I be wise enough with the leading of the Word of God to keep at bay these activities, And so finally, that worst ending, that worst ending, of course, of his betrayal and finally taking his own life. We will not have to give thought to an ending as negative and as bad as that because our ending will be the one spoken of with such goodness. Think about Paul. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous judge shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love His appearing. 2 Timothy 4, verses 7 and 8. In that same book, verse 12 of chapter 1, I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. And so tonight, it would have certainly appeared that Judas had failed to commit himself unto the one who could keep him so safely. What about you and me tonight? Have you committed your soul, your entire self, unto the one who can so carefully keep it until that noble day of judgment? If you have done that, then continue to walk in steadfastness and faithfulness, for that faithfulness shall in fact redound unto your everlasting goodness and glory. But if... You have never begun to walk that pathway of safety and that pathway of salvation. Why not tonight? Why not tonight? The seventh day of November 2010, your spiritual birthday it could be. And this day forward, you will never be the same individual. You will be a new creature, ready to walk in goodness, not like Judas, in such ignobility. Tonight, if you've never begun that walk, The Lord has commanded you, believe Jesus to be the Son of God. Repent of your sins. Confess His name as the Son of God and be baptized for the remission of sins. If you have begun that walk, perhaps too with a good beginning, similar to Judas, but then you've begun to take some wrong turns. You've begun to walk down some pathways, and the way it currently is going, it's going to lead to nowhere good. Make some turns. Turn around. Come back to the little Savior. He's wanting you right back faithfully at His side. And we could pray for you and with you tonight. It would be our honor and privilege. We would only ask in either of these manners if you would let us know the manner in which we could assist you. And that you would do that with haste even now while together we stand and while we sing.